Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Warhorse Podcast. We begin with two quotes. The first from Ludwig Wittgenstein. What inclines even me to believe in Christ's resurrection? I play, as it were, with the thought... If he did not rise from the dead, then he decomposed in the grave like every human being. He is dead and decomposed. In that case, he is a teacher like any other and can no longer help. And we are once more orphaned and alone and have to make do with wisdom and speculation. It is, it is as though we are in hell where we can only dream and are shut out from heaven roofed in as it were but if i am to be really redeemed i need certainty not wisdom dreams speculation and this certainty is faith and faith is faith in what my heart my soul needs not my speculative intellect for my soul with its passions as it were with its flesh and blood must be redeemed not my abstract mind Perhaps one may say only love can believe the resurrection, or it is love that believes the resurrection. One might say, redeeming love believes even in the resurrection, holds fast even to the resurrection. What fights doubt is, as it were, redemption. Holding fast to it must be holding fast to this belief. So this means... First, be redeemed and hold on tightly to your redemption. Keep hold of your redemption. Then you will see that what you are holding on to is this belief. So this can only come about if you no longer support yourself on this earth, but suspend yourself from heaven. Then everything is different, and it is no wonder, even if you can then do what now you cannot do, it is true that someone who is suspended looks like someone who is standing, but the interplay of forces within him is nevertheless a quite a different one, and hence he is able to do quite different things than one can do who stands. Election by grace it is only permissible to write like this out of the most frightful suffering, and then it means something quite different. But for this reason, it is not permissible for anyone to cite it as truth, unless he himself says it in torment. It simply isn't a theory. Or, as one might also say, if this is truth, it is not the truth it appears at first glance to express. It's less a, a theory than a sigh or a cry. And our second quote 
comes from Gina H on Twitter. Four retweets, 23 likes at the time that I screenshotted it. Gina says, Satan is the author of confusion. God is truth, period. This is playing out before the public right now. So, housekeeping, my apologies for this long delay between episodes that was not planned. That storm around Christmas time wreaked much havoc here. Water pumps gone, frozen pipes, demo, salvage, lots of uncomfortable. exigencies to manage so um, new season new tone this episode will be free in its entirety if this is your first warhorse experience you're probably going to want to go back to season one because we're not necessarily going to be running over the same ground and um, this will be good for the avid absorber of the warhorse but for newcomers um, this is not it's an exercise in it's an experiment a novel podcast uh, sort of continuity so um, couple of announcements there's one knife left in the Winkler knives golden goat guild collaboration it's up on the website which is goldengoatguild.net one remains after that that's it Instagram was the place well, at least for the past year where I attempted to set up shop to utilize social media to grow an audience and uh, humbly purvey the best novel of the past decade, King of Dogs. But Instagram is a piece of shit. So is Twitter. So is all of it. Nonetheless, you got to do what you got to do, I suppose. But um, I've really come to hate Instagram. The changes that they made recently, the inability to, there's really no um, interaction at all. You know, you post some shit, some people view it, that's it. It was useful. Um, I did make some fantastic uh, connections here and there. The account will remain there. I'm just not going to, I doubt I'll post there. I doubt I will, I will blow it off of my phone. That's the other thing is the, the incessant notifications, demands uh, for my attention. I'm happy to engage in a fair transaction. 
vis-a-vis, uh, you know, my attention for your digital networking service, but that shit doesn't happen. It's just constant demands on my attention with uh, very little in the way of benefit. So I will phase it out. I hope you will join me in pure evil over at Twitter. That seems to be likely more stable and less less demanding. The handle over there is the same, Golden Goat Guild. Navigator course collaboration. So the thing with the Navigator course is it's unlike anything else that you could find in the universe at this point. I guarantee, I guarantee you that. Some difficulties in making classes happen for dudes around the country have arisen from just basically location. You know, if there's not enough interest to, to justify the travel costs, it can't really happen. So with this collaboration, uh, we're going to we're going to change things up, which I'll get to in a second. Navigator course is essentially combat, manhunting, tracking, married to metaphysics, breathwork, inner control, precision, these sorts of things. This particular collaboration will instead of the tracking, involve Precision Rifle. And a fellow who is, without question, um, one of the most experienced and absolute best in the world at, at his game, will do the Precision Rifle side. I will do the Breathwork Control Inner Work side. Where it will go down is the question and when. So I put it out now so that we start to gather some interest and some idea. Of, likely it'll be in the West somewhere. Um, because that's generally where we do our long-range work. And uh, more details forthcoming. The standard navigator package is also on the website and those classes for groups and individuals who are interested. Similar thing at this point. Um, the solution seems to be regional, you know. If you want to do one and you live in New York, you got to start gathering the dudes from Maine, Rhode Island, you know, maybe down to Virginia. I don't know. Oh. 
the book. The book is definitely not going to be out in early spring. Setbacks being what they are. As well, the book itself has morphed, which is what you want. If you're going into it thinking you know what you're going to do, you'll hear this from you know people who have their MFAs or, or other sorts of things. What was the point of writing the book? You know, if you're looking to engage the genre market, you don't need to really do that. You don't need to mix yourself in with real writing, uh, the process. You know, it's, it's a workflow thing for you. This ain't that. And so it is an unwieldy piece, let me tell you. Um, but that's why I do it, because it's exciting. And um, it's going to take a little bit longer. I'm not sure when the next you know, moment of opportunity to rewrite it will arise. The live wire, as I've said, in my understanding of how these things work, you're not, you're not in control of it. If you are, again, back to the genre production thing, great. We will see you on, um, you know, the back pages of Amazon streaming service or what have you. Speaking of which, the last sort of announcement, housekeeping piece, um, in addition to the collaboration, the book and some other stuff, the big push for me personally this year is to sell the film rights or option them For King of Dogs out into the world this year. How that's going to happen, I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, old Hollywood has died. It's yet to be resurrected. Um, massive Chinese money floats there. The streaming services fight each other for pretty much lowest common denominator attention harvesting once again. There seems to be oh, the faintest pulse of a sort of resurgence of an indie film market, aesthetic, etc. Given the technology, you'd think it would be more likely. The technological advances, etc. Barriers to entry. It's been a long time since I really... That's Riker, by the way, snoring. We just have to live with it. Good boy. It's been a long time since I really dove in. I'm going to push hard at writing a couple of screenplays this year. I have an idea or two. In, uh, what, 2001... I began studying the craft of screenwriting and I went hard for about three years. Got a degree, wrote a bunch of them, participated in, at that time, you know, the forums were actually really valuable and there was a lot of interaction and um, the dominance of places like, you know, big 
aggregated forums like 4chan and reddit were not much of a thing and the takeaway at that point was that the standard wisdom was like you're I think I've said this before you are more likely to win the California state lottery twice than you are to sell a script and have that script actually produced. The factors of talent, um, taste, nepotism, luck, it's quite a fucking thing, really. And, um, you know, to not to mention CIA interests and whatever else has been... Uh, CCP interests, who knows, that have been responsible for much of that super powerful output for quite a while. 2020, it was evident that Hollywood was over. Finally, the, even the biggest names had fled and relocated themselves to Dallas, Austin, Nashville, Bozeman, North Carolina back all the way to New York, I suppose. And I'm not entirely sure, therefore, you know, how, how to sort it out. King of Dogs was constructed, being that I had that foundation, to be easily translated into film. It wasn't, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's, I suppose it is with certain types of novels, but King of Dogs is uh, exceptional in several regards, but this one in particular. Um, the idea was to make an action film in the genre of the literary fiction novel and to hit all of the exceptional necessary criteria for each of those areas which was accomplished the uh, the fact of the dissolution of the old system would for the optimistic seem to open up massive opportunities the issue is the financing. Even in the best of days, if the miracle happens and you you have agents or a a real producer or say an actor who who is also producing, take interest in your your piece of written property and then go about this completely bizarre process of gathering money which historically it's understood in the in all of the biographies the fame you know uh, Robert Town or um, just the commentaries of screenwriters along the way as well as directors and producers the takeaway is kind of like Nobody really knows how this works, when it works. If, it, if anybody knew, then they would just 
boil it down to that model and extract the operant principle and unitize it time after time again, which is ultimately, you know, that's what you see on the streaming platforms. That's what you see. I haven't been to a theater in like, I don't even know how long, 10 years, 15. That's what you see. So I'm not aware that, you know, what is even on screens today. They might be playing video games there for all I know. Um, but the attempt to finally do that, you know, it's really happened. That's why you see all these Marvel movies and then the political propaganda mind control pieces are there predicate to that of course but it's all of a piece like this is the this is the lot this is the combined logic everywhere that is affecting the absolute disintegration of certainly you know social realities that we spent a fair bit of time in season one going over but more to the point reality itself in the the last episode of season one, you know, we said that the oncoming storm, you know, uh, winter is coming, this massive front approaching of the AI singularity. You know, this is going to happen whether or not AI reaches something like uh, touring level consciousness that's that's not you know possible it's not going to happen but it's sure as hell going to be sold as if it happened and the result is is inevitable this has been baked in the cake since adam and eve in the fucking garden like we're going there and the thrust of this podcast has never been right wing versus left wing i mean if you haven't figured that out by now that i don't give a flying fuck about your fucking politics um, you know, uh, it's about actual survival. You're not all of this mid tier blather about tribal balkanization, about redoubts and retreats and strategies and all this stuff. Misses the entire point that if the sort of systematized road that you took and you insist on taking eventuates in outcome X, which is you having sold your soul into this program for its comforts, you're not going to renegotiate some, you know, slippery little uh, exit from that at the last minute. And as much as I appreciate a lot of the online religious, you know, what do we call them? Apologists, proselytizers, uh, bloviators, etc. Perhaps myself included. Um, 
there's ultimately no un you're not going to unravel these two you are going to go and it's not a return it's um it's like a massive dismount it's a renunciation anyway so with all that highfalutin shit said my dismount would uh, preferably include selling of these film rights and uh, a, a super egotistical fuck you on the way out. I'd like to leave that story of King of Dogs for anyone who cares to check it out. Because I think if you take that road where it, where it leads, again, you, you take the one systematized road or you find where it bifurcates and you start to loop way 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 back 2500 years 160,000 years whatever um, but the pain associated with that with ultimately taking the vow of silence uh, you know in terms of your level of knowing like you know what's right I mean that's where the political thing is headed right correct the right knows, the left knows. Meanwhile, the uh, totalitarian hovercraft above it all absolutely orchestrates the whole thing. You know, I mean, God bless Ron Paul. What more can you say? Um, nothing changed. It's only gotten, it's gotten worse for you know the tangible material reasons that we can all point to but it's gotten worse too um mostly on the spiritual side where you know despair is now repackaged as a sort of style um personality an identity various sub identities ultimately just born of despair and acquiescence so if you know any of these players, if you want to see any of this crazy shit happen, I would appreciate you avid warhorse absorbers backing me up on the, the very various efforts to reach out to the most unlikely, um, what does Elon Musk say? The most unlikely or the most novel outcome is, is the most likely. It's just, you know, only a... a the wealthiest man in human history could say something like that. And on the other hand, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's got a point. How it will happen. I am not sure. Faith precedes knowledge. I have faith in what went into that, the suffering, the cry, the faith has to extend out in, in any of the, we, we talked about these, you know, various stories of Hollywood. There's all these classic versions. And um, I suppose the most reasonable path involves honing your craft, constructing a life that you can live with while you try and achieve this, and be ready for the luck to fall in your lap. There's an 
we'll talk about Shigur in a minute in the next um, module. Shigur, the judge, the coin. That path is, it's almost as if, again, if you know it, um, you don't really know it. So it's a matter of faith. That said, you got to do the work, I suppose. Let's check our time here on this intro. All right, looking good. A couple more minutes and then we will break. This is the new setup. 30 minutes break, 30 minutes break. The one hour wall uh, will be the, the paid subscriber wall. This episode again will go out entirely for free. The most likely path at this, again, disjointed, disunified, odd moment in um, filmmaking history would be, in my opinion, you access to a star with um, notions of going into producing. The package that really made True Detective Season 1 happen was obviously McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. I don't know quite how that happened. Nick Pizzolatto was a nobody with an MFA before that. Clearly, he's um, a man who can beat down doors and uh, write a script. The rest of it, uh, you know, there's no, there's no accounting for. My sense was that you show up with that script and those two guys, um, how does HBO say no? I think that King of Dogs as an Amazon thing would be shit, Netflix shit. HBO, it's almost like you need to, you need to jump back a decade to the tone then but apply it now. And what I mean is like most of the, even the HBO shows now are working on this assumption that you're going to binge watch the thing, which is okay, but the episode itself needs to have air to breathe, um, particularly with a story like King of Dogs where you could probably do it in five um, if you stretch it out to eight, you got plenty of room to play. Can you really spend two or three minutes staring at, um, or maybe a minute staring at this staggering beauty of the red desert of Moab? Yeah, you could. You absolutely can. The trick is finding the fucking guy who also believes that. Nick Pizzolatto follows a number of characters on Twitter who you and I probably follow. He's buddies with Vince Vaughn. Good friends. They, I believe Vince Vaughn was one of, you know, two, what do they call him? Groomsmen at his wedding? Or three. Vince Vaughn is tight with Mel Gibson. All of a sudden, with one step, you're talking about the type of talent package that you can go anywhere. Where do you go? Do you go to Amanda Milius and go to John Milius 
and say, hey, old man, let's make, let's make this movie in the spirit of Wolverines. Let's, you know, carry what you carried forward till the last step, if you will. Certainly that was an inspiration at subconscious level. I mean, I watched the shit out of that thing 500 times on old HBO. Do you, there's a lot of, you know, dicey social political odd i mean everybody ha- everybody uh you know is is fucking scrambling whether they want to admit it or not and the, the sooner that we admit that i think that the sooner we find our real friends it's been floated in my uh little you know inner circles that taylor kitsch would would probably be able to pull off the role of grace and it would be the role of a lifetime I've studied him a little bit lately and before. I wasn't too sure of of his career, but he plays Woodrue in True Detective Season 2. So all of a sudden, you have this little network emerging. Do you go... Does Mel Gibson... Obviously, he has um, financing pipelines. How big do you dream? I don't know, but that's uh, 2023. So that's module one. I will hit you with some music or a chime or maybe some sampled and affected um, audio recordings of dogs regurgitating. I'm not entirely sure yet, but that'll be the kind of new streamlined format for season so here's a little story and then i'm gonna connect this with um the judge blood meridian and anton shigur no country for old men the little story goes like this I think it was 2019. Maybe no, those years are pretty pretty hazy for me. But 2018-ish, maybe coming out of my own personal, uh, say, dark season of the soul, and uh, getting ready to make my my flight from Portland into exile. I had spent like four years or so. Um, learning the guitar techniques of guys like Chet Atkins, Pat Donahue, Mark Knopfler, um, 10,000 hours easy, easy. And along the way, you know, similar, similarly to the way you you pick up your first handgun let's say it's a beretta 92 because hey it was military issued it it's got to be good enough for me you mount that thing you quickly realize this hog leg is is just too damn heavy to carry every day the holster options suck you're not so sure you need the external safety there are rumors of 
slides cracking under tension. I love the beautiful exposed barrel design um, of those Berettas. So you do some investigation, you think, well, people shit on the, the Tupperware guns, the XD, the Glock, the M&Ps. Maybe I'll stick with metal guns. Maybe you move over to the high power and you realize, well, I no longer have the external safety unless I got that one fancy version of the high power that had that safety. But I have to carry in this is condition one, I think the FUDs call it, cocked and locked. That is how, now I'm questioning, maybe the high power does have an external safety standard. It's been a long time since I handled one. But either way, say you get one, and now you do, you do have to carry in some sort of condition regarding the hammer. But again, you got the holster problem. Not, not everybody makes a really sweet Kydex holster. Maybe the Kydex, you know, rubs on your, your bluing. Maybe you want those extra two rounds that the Glock gives you. So the point is, whether it's the AR, your, your carry piece, uh, your knife, what have you, the industry is probably accounting for this fact very well. Nobody picks up their first pistol and just sticks with it. Some people, I think, eventually come all the way back around to something like the first pistol and be like, fuck it, I'm just going to carry J-frame snub nose in my coat pocket and that's good enough. Some people, I suppose, do pick up a really standard, great, hard to argue with carry piece right out of the gate. Um, but, you know, there's so many options you want to play with them. So, in the guitar playing world, in the music world, it's exactly the same. Stratocaster, Telecaster, Les Paul, Humbucker, Single Coil, Coil Tap. Something I can really afford. Something I probably out of my budget but I absolutely need it something in between that's probably going to be mediocre in one sense or another and I'm going to have to settle for it blah 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 Fender Leo Fender is this sort of mad genius guy who created Fender guitars he designed the P bass the Telecaster the Strat not to mention a shit ton of amps and a bunch of other stuff He sells Fender at a certain point to the CBS Corporation, which immediately institutes various cost-cutting measures, which result in the degradation of quality of all these instruments. At the same time, in the land of the rising sun 
our Japanese brothers are making a massive um, clawback into becoming an industrial power. And they don't give a shit. They begin manufacturing exact replicas of everything. Telecasters, Stratocasters, Les Pauls. And they're doing it much, much better than anybody in America is doing it. The advent of the true like custom guitar builder who will recreate essentially a strat and not essentially i mean an exact strat or telecaster has not happened yet most of what you see played by your your guitar hero or your your super famous musician if he plays I don't want to pick one in particular because I may be incorrect. Let's just use Knopfler, though. Knopfler is a bad example, though, because I, I doubt he cares so much about the, the technical piece of it. Though he is particular, nostalgic, sentimental, um, it may be... And he's, I mean, he's massive. People don't realize that Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits were the biggest thing in the world at a certain moment in the early 80s. Bigger than Michael Jackson, bigger than Madonna, by quite a, a sight. Neither here nor there. He, um, he has a signature Strat that you can buy. I think it's 3500 bucks. They may not make it anymore. And this is supposed to be a massive upgrade from the lower tiers, your standard strat, of which there are, there are tons. Made in Japan, made in Korea, made in Indonesia. Um, the player series, the nostalgia series, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the custom shop. And that's just an actually, okay, this is what you want. This is like, no corners were cut. It was made in America. It's perfect out of the box. That's, that's what anybody would, you know, you kind of deserve. But the entire industry is such that, like every other thing in your experience today, if you don't buy the absolute best, no matter what it is, it could be your, you know, your backup generator. It could be your gas can. It could be your angle grinder. It could be your vehicle. Obviously, it can be your weapons. If you don't get the absolute best or cobble together yourself out of the highest quality parts, something like a custom version of the actually absolute best, um, yeah, it could work. And there's all these silly arguments going back and forth with like PSA or um, in the guitar world, the analog would be Ibanez maybe. Or something like this. Uh, it's, it's, you know, just buy new pickups. Buy a new um, bridge. Okay, so just get a new trigger package. Replace the barrel, and you're just as good. I mean, what the fuck? Just save your money and get what you, what you really need. It is 
it is a disappointing situation though um, because for the for the, the mass of people um, even though and it didn't used to be like this right so if we go back to 1955 if you go into the shop to buy an electric guitar I'm not so sure that it's going to be the equivalent of $4,000 today. You still need to get an amp, a few other accessories. I think it would have been more like a thousand. It's it's an expense. You're, you know, uh, the the high school kid is going to have to save up a little while, but you're going to have something. If you purchased that 1950, 1960, say 1962 Strat, and you kept it till today, it's now worth you know, it could be half a million dollars. Likewise, I suppose, if you purchased um, somebody's 1911 in 1962, that thing's probably worth $10,000. Anyway, the point of the story is, my solution to this was to acquire me one of these Japanese copies of a Stratocaster. I don't like the options now. Um, I left a thread hanging there. So let me go back. The Knopfler bit. Most of those signature guitars are very good. Um, the man on the stage, Mark Knopfler, is probably playing a custom version, maybe even made outside of the Fender Custom Shop by, you know, some super high-end artisan tucked away in Venice Beach or um, Asheville, North Carolina. That's what he's really playing. And then Fender makes the deal, go ahead and slap our sticker on it. Nobody will know. So that was that last piece. I have this tendency to leave a few, uh, a few loose threads. Apologies for the interruption um, or the background noise. Sit. Good boy. All the way down. So. I acquire me from Japan, from a Japanese seller, uh, a mint condition, what is called a tokoi, tokai, tokai, springy sound. They had these funny names, so it's a springy sound instead of a Stratocaster because the Stratocaster bridge floats on these on these springs for the tremolo. Um, the Telecaster copy was called Breezy Sound. And why exactly, we don't know, because maybe Telecaster is associated with country music, and so the breeze is something natural, we don't know. The bass, the Tokai, was called the Hard Puncher. Hard Puncher. Exact, perfect replica of the legendary P bass. Keep in mind, uh, in fact, Knopfler 
played a tokai at a certain point. He also played, excuse me, no, he played a Fernandez copy. There was a bunch of these different labels, and all of them came out of two or three factories. Fujigen, I think, was the big one, which was later purchased, I believe, by Fender to become then branded as Fender Japan, which Fender Japan, everybody still knows, is better than almost every Fender uh, other than that $4,000 or $6,000 custom shop Fender actually made in America. These people were, one, if you just have to pick an object of commerce made by a craftsman in Japan or a craftsman in, or let's, yeah, just say a craftsman in America, you're hard-pressed to decide. They're absolutely on par. Culturally, we're not even in the same fucking universe. And this was evidenced in the deal. I don't speak, I don't, you know, whatever, Ohio Gazimus, that's it. Okay, I'm done. My uncle happened to have lived, he lived in Japan for 20 years. He speaks the language. He understands. He said, I, I approached him to help me do translation and secure. It's, you know, it, um, it's a fair amount of money and I don't want it to just disappear. And I really want this guitar. It's taken me, you know, you're deep into like weird regions of the internet where the translation is terrible. It's, they do not have um, an English version of the website you're dealing with. And there are tons of these little boutique uh, vintage guitar shops in Japan. He says to me, my uncle, yes, of course I will help you, but you don't need to worry about anything. Because these are the most honorable people who have ever walked the planet. And essentially, it, there was a little bit of back and forth. Um, you know, is this really this good? Essentially is my question. Yes, so good. Okay, fuck it. Send off my money. Two days later from Japan, absolutely pristine, 1979, Mary Kay translucent white vintage Stratocaster arrives at my house. I should say this was like my fourth Tokai that I had picked up and probably the 10th guitar that I'd gone through. Strats, Telecasters, player grade, super grade, blah, 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 used, new, whatever. Again, similar to the gun world, guitars have user-specific particularities that become kind of all important. Yes, if all you have lying in front of you is a PSA standard M forgery style weapon with some sort of jerry-rigged CAA foregrip on it. And uh, let's say it has a really good sight though. It has the T1 aim point. 
is it is it a, no it's not exactly what you want it's not even fucking close to you know if you you want a slimline forearm that extends 15 inches out to the end of your 16 inch barrel you want a particular muzzle device um is it a cold hammer forged barrel is it this massive stainless heavy barrel what's the profile right well the necks of guitars also have various profiles and nobody has ever really made a uniform system for understanding them there's the v-shape the u-shape the d-shape the c-shape the c-slim there's a wizard a clapton a boat neck a fat neck a super soft v-neck a soft v-neck the 62 the 59 and all of this shit is different. And it, at first you think, well, fuck it all. You know, I'll just be a utilitarian out of it and I'll just get it done. And you realize after putting about, you know, 40 or 60 hours of your hand on that, manipulating it, you realize why guys like Clapton took, you know, a belt sander and fucking re-profiled this thing to fit them why stevie ray vaughn did that why people stuck with certain models and then stuck with particular guitars so musashi here may have a point and the convergence between weapons and instruments probably holds in the long run i would imagine that you could put Jimi hendrix on i mean hell if you ever watched him play that like that 12 string you know it worked out pretty good that 12 string acoustic video famous where he does some blues um so probably probably shit musashi is still right and of course here we're referencing the idea that you should never be too particular um you shouldn't grow too attached to this particular Glock, for instance. You might say, I'm a Glock man. Okay, well then pick up any Glock and go. But nobody, you know, um, I think I think it holds for professional warriors, and I think it probably holds for professional musicians. But I think we know, too, that if we were to ask a bunch of Delta guys, do they customize their weapons? Absolutely they do. They might be customized to the unit they might be customized to the man so as this guitar arrives the question is are they really certain that's the right neck because i have spent uh the better part of a year figuring out the, the various you know syntax behind and the logic behind what was tokai doing were they making these perfect replicas of the original Telecaster, the original Stratocaster, the 59 or the 62, because in Fender history, this changed a little bit. I take it out of the box, it's absolutely perfect. It's this hand done, what I would guess the closest thing you could call it would be like a, a soft V that slopes into a super soft V slash 
fat C shape. I'm talking about the back of the neck. I understand, of course, you know, the... Good boy. Sit. The, the customizable options continue. Um, as they do with, with modern-day weapons as well. The guitar is perfect. That was right about the time where I got into Pat Donahue. Um, if you're not aware of Pat Donahue, most people aren't, obviously. I think that he held down the band for this radio show called Prairie Home Companion. They did way before, you know, the whole kind of uh, Jillian Welch rootsy acoustic thing got big and the Coens got into it with Oh Brother Where Art Thou. For quite some time, you know, that the, the groundwork for that was laid by guys like uh, Garrison Keeler, who is, a, of course, a super shit lib from Minnesota, but, um, and Pat Donahue, and, you know, they carried this torch, and his, uh, virtuosity is, mm, mm, check him out, he's very mellow dude, you know, I don't think he's, I find nothing offensive about Pat Donahue, and, uh, astounded by his playing. So I begin to translate all of his acoustic work, which is super intricate finger style, sort of um, jazz folk based stuff. You're talking about, you know, he is essentially taking boogie woogie piano and then finding a way to recreate that on the guitar. So that's what we're talking about. Being that Knopfler's fingerstyle was the basis of where I wanted to go, this was, this was doable because I think that Knopfler's fingerstyle technique arose from his attempts to recreate um, boogie, what it's called. That's a certain type of, of rhythm. So... I, I pushed through, I achieved that tragedy. The great big black cloud came over. Guitar was put in its case for a while. As that season ended and I looked forward at for what to do with my life and I, I knew I would be hitting the road for you know maybe the rest of my life for a long, long time. And... Um, I wanted to clear out, you know, there's nothing, there's no, the, the ideas of like attachment or whatever, you know, again, this particular guitar, no, I don't need it. So I let go of, you know, almost everything that I owned at that time, if it had not already been taken from me. And uh, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I threw that guitar up and let it go and moved on. So then fast forward like six years or something, I've gone through another handful, I don't know, five, six custom guitars, this, that, the other thing, and I realized I fucked up. 
so last fall, I thought to myself, actually it was suggested to me, why don't you just reach out to that dude that you sold it to? Just see if he, you know. So I look him up and I just happen to ask. I tell the truth. That was the one, dude. I shouldn't have let it go. If you have any, you know, inclination to sell it, let me know. Sure, you can have it back. Pay my money. A few days later, my perfect springy sound Tokai 1979 translucent Mary Kay White Brazilian fingerboard shows up 100% original in the exact same condition that I let it go what does this have to do with the judge and Anton Shigur long story to get here McCarthy tells you at a certain point towards the end of the book let me get a sip of my Joe here I did not realize this module would go this long with these interruptions okay we'll keep going McCarthy tells you of what the judge is judge of. Of what is the judge judge? <clears throat> the kid has a dream. Feverish dream. And in the dream he sees the judge and he sees the judge looking over the shoulder of this hunched over engraver a cold engraver of coins and he is engraving thereon the face right which used to be the monarchy the emperor the leader or some symbol of the organizing principle of that society into which this currency is inserted The judge is a, an, is obviously an embodiment of pure evil, um, a walking archon. He's all of these things. Don't let anybody ever tell you that McCarthy is simply some sort of realist or he is bound. He knows that you want to bind him. He knows it before he ever picks up the pen. If he tells you something, it's because that's what he wants you as the guy who's going to turn around and put some opinion into the world. That's what he wants you to do. And it may not be for some, it's probably never going to be for some obvious reason. He knows the game. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> he understands that, and he seems to understand this Pardon me, I apologize, but I can't, I can't stop here. He understands, at, a, at least by outer dark, that he's going to be something. And, um, and by that, he's going to create something, and you are going to have to contend with it. 
critics, the canon, the great conversation, the doors, he is going to open these. He's going to access this realm and he's going to do something in there. So he understands that biographers down the road are going to do what they do with genius, which is compress, make linear, create identity, false identity, to control because they are not geniuses. They did not take that road. They understand the absolute power, the electricity fucking zorching up off of the page. They can intuit what levels of sacrifice, suffering, self-obliteration, recreation, all of these things that this creator has had to endure. They can intuit that. They, they understand in the way that, you know, you can look out your window at the, the deer shivering on the side of the road and say, fuck, that life is tough. But they're going to chuckle. They're going to reduce all that finally into some listicle in the Guardian about, you know, the greatest all-time works of English literature. Blood Meridian takes up, reluctantly, of course, um, 21 in the, in the position 21 among... Or, or is it even on the hunt? I've seen lists where it doesn't even fucking appear in the last couple of years. He knows that eventually it will appear everywhere. Um, and he knows that what he says and does and how he lives his life is going to be computed into some sort of notion of equivalence with his work. It's not, it's not really going to be that... Um, now, for you and me and you know a bunch of sane people who understand respect and sacrifice in these things, you know, we compute this too. We understand that that's the game. So, as this, as he's creating this character to stand for this thing, which, what is this thing? Go back to the quote that we opened up this episode with. Listen to the rest of this episode. Consider the moment where at the campfire, the judge does his prestidigitation. He flips the coin into the air, circles around the campfire, way out, comes back into his hand. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it, I mean, this is a supernatural feat, or it's just, as I say, sleight of hand. The coin shows up there, and then we find out that the judge decides what image is going to go on this, the currency, the thing that flows through the system of industrialization, commerce, ultimately technology, and ultimately that road. We'll say again, 
that human history took. Go back to the garden. Consider the the tree. Consider the choice, the fall, good and evil. He swoops that coin out into silence. That the silence was the choice untaken. The coin comes back. That is, in my estimation, maybe the theme that propels McCarthy beyond, you know, it's the total package. It's the absolute, I mean, not just perfect prose. It's uh, as much originality as we can have given the confines of the language in terms of style. It's uh, simply stated in terms of, you know, uh, the form of the novel and the various elements that comprise that form. This is the apogee. This is the peak of what is possible. No Country for Old Men was written originally as a screenplay in 1980. The genius, of course, is, you know, uh, you, you get this 1980 story in whatever that was, 2010 or something. It's something else entirely. If you can imagine what it would have been like had that screenplay sold then and been made and forgotten, what would have happened to McCarthy's career, etc. The Coens, Josh Brolin, The Times, all this, it was... In time, you know, it's not a flat circle, but it's certainly not linear. And luck and fate. And those of us who buck against the system and are willing to lay down our lives for that. Not, you know, on some hill with a 50 cal and fucking blah, blah, blah. That shit is not going to fucking happen. You know that. Hell, if, if James Wesley Rawls wrote it, I'm not even going to uh, cite my references here. For you who know, you know. For those who don't know, you're better off not knowing. It's, it's that stupid. The coin shows up again, right? And as the coin has shown up now, it's irrelevant what's on the coin. It's merely a binary system, an absolute reduction of everything that we would say is the realm of silence, everything, the realm of the heart, everything outside of man's logic as opposed to man's logic is not logic. You know, it's not, it, it is, okay, let's be a little precise here. Logic, too, is scaffolding. It's here and it's effective for man. God is supra-logical, supra-rational. If this is massive sweep throughout all of human, the history of human thought, but here we are. 
to think that rationality as we know it must apply to God is to eat of the tree, the forbidden tree, uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the mouthful. And the other line that tells it from No Country for Old Men uh, is the comment about the the degradation of uh, mercantile ethics. The fact that there's no country for old men is because the old men have been removed. The, 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 the ethos, the ethics, all of that is gone. Long fucking gone. My point with bringing this up is to say We're not waiting for a singularity. We're not waiting for the moment when it kicks off, when the balloon goes up. In the same sense that our, we have already, you were born, so you have already died. It's already in place somewhere. You could say that the singularity has already occurred. The overwhelm of anything like a human-based ethics. Um, what you guys want to call, what most of you want to call, you know, reasonable, rational, conservative thinking, you know, is this... Uh, pure, non-corrupt, justified, justice. I think that the big psyop here is that everybody's sitting around waiting for this or that event to kick off and um, that's already all been actuarially, actuaried out um, and that may sound like the ultimate black pill and maybe it is. That's, you know, whether you whether it's, that's not my, I don't give a fuck. I'm not here to shore up, you know, anybody's illusions about whatever. Um, I'm here to work shit out for myself with people. Who care to consider it from all these angles. The point being, we're already deep. I'd say three decades at least into a, a total systematic change from uh, the inherent freedom of the human soul, which has free will and can do anything. It can change its mind 12 times in the next six seconds, as evidenced by me talking to you and you choosing to listen or you choosing to say, this guy's full of shit. For the mass, the bulk, more than 50%, we both know it's more like 85%. That notion, that, uh, that, rea that lingering sense that there's something else that was carried on and preserved all, you know, through, I mean, strongly, right, through the, through the medieval era, uh, Augustine, 
Heidegger intuits it. All the, you know, whoever, uh, fucking Kubrick. For the masses, uh, which in terms of... The, I want to say, I don't, I'll say the geometry or the mathematics of belief. That matters. Now, the forest passage, of course, matters too, right? But your forest passage is going to be based off of reacting to the herd. So the longer we continue to stare at the spectacle and hope that Stephen fucking Crowder or, or Jordan B. Peterson or whoever or your local fire department or your, your local thing, that ain't where the fight is. And it never was. So that will be the extended first hour of uh, episode one, season two. I'll hit you with the standard uh, segue break and then conversation will resume. Next episode is going to feature a, um, a fellow who I think... Um, really embodies the notion, the archetype of the criminal of purpose, which many of you have asked for. So we're going to go, we're going to go deep into some practicalities on that level. When that'll be, I'm not sure. Um, keeping this thing alive is probably the necessarily going to be the thrust as opposed to, you know, just banging out, uh, regular content i don't i don't to be quite frank um you know the rewards are not of this world if you will and many of you understand that we've had interactions that's probably of vastly more value than the shekels uh that will appear in my in my or not appear or fucking you know it's become sort of truly irrelevant so that's to say uh I'm committed to, you know, regular output. Will it be, you know, one every four days as it often was last year? I don't think so. I think season two is going to have a totally different tone. The point is, and we'll get into this as we go, we're waking up into the dream, which is not... The, the equation that we're used to here, you know, wake up or you're woke. Consider that stuff. That itself is part of the PSYOP. Wake up to what? Wake up from what? Who else is with you? What the fuck are you even talking about? The dumbed down, simplified, you know, sued. It's what it is. It's, it's massively sued. The matrix itself is like the sued's um, holy grail. That ain't what's fucking happening. All right, with that... I will leave you for hour two.
So one of the main preoccupations in this latest written thing that I've been doing is orbiting this idea of reorienting or redefining maybe this age-old distinction between being awake, um, being asleep, the dream. Warhorse listeners are probably familiar with the high water points, you know, throughout history. David Lynch and the ancient question, who is the dreamer? dream analysis of the early psychoanalysts, Zhuangzi, I woke up from a dream that I was a butterfly, or am I a butterfly dreaming I'm a man? The Gurdjieffian Maybe the yeah, I don't know, tenant number one, that we are asleep most of the time. Where he got this is much disputed, but it's entered into the pop- popular lexicon um, to the point where you know the Matrix film has kind of seemingly defined what it is. So it's that definition that I take issue with. In this section, I'm going to attempt to pry that apart and see what you think. There was a point uh, four, five, six years ago where after coming out of the proverbial dark night of the soul, I had the sense that um, the only way I could term it, uh, the only thing that seems to be my own, was that the ironic detachment from God had evaporated the relationship the relational distance if you will between the notion or the the reality and the notion let's say myself whatever that is and god again whatever that is this this had diminished to in a way nothing you know um accepting the full mystical omnipotent power omnipotent power of what what we know as god we understand as well that we are constituted to experience this for the most part miracles like singular mystical experiences accepted of course your day to day 
is again before enlightenment chop wood carry water after enlightenment chop wood carry water that's the place that again Gurdjieff or Rumi or whoever else Saint Maximus the Confessor is is extolling us uh, to deal with you could go make your pilgrimage to the Eleusinian mysteries and drink the kukion or the kaikion or whatever and go through the process be rich be ritually processed drink the brew and uh, in a similar way you know you can have a, you can have a similar experience now uh, I I would contend that 25 30 years ago was a was a much better time to engage in your own uh, you know ritual processing because that's what you're doing at this stage you're not engaged with um, a coherent cultural myth that you could even question that you could even undermine in your mystical experience tripping uh, what have you deep contemplation hesychast whatever meditation astral projection that doesn't exist at all um, you can fool yourself and much of you know orthodox twitter or catholic tradcath twitter fucking protestant you know conservative uh two-way american twitter whatever the fuck that's all that's like the worst of what the liberal mindset you know that's pink floyd saying um to hear the softly spoken magic spell uh this denigration of religion itself as we know it uh, or even the religious not maybe not the religious impulse but they're certainly making a uh, a cutting commentary and that at that point in history i think more so than now um the fact of your indeterminate uncertain status was itself An accepted thing so you could start you could sort of start from that at least that would be your your firm footing time wears on the conditions are much different in my opinion now um, the vestiges of reality and the looseness that was available post 70s with boomer parents there was there was a tether back to something that that is gone now it's a strange thing so in my experience this collapsing of what I can only term again the ironic distance with with God it's as if now one is 
again, as I would term it then as it was happening, um, which was insufficient then and is insufficient now, but it's as if you are no longer watching the movie that you're in, but you are now actually in the movie that you are in. This is the kind of thing that you could get to through death work. I think that's where you want to get get to at this stage for a lot of us. The LARPing with respect to, again, whatever you want to call it, religion, mystical experience, just the fact of your fucking totally unexplained existence, even cursorily questioned. Uh, that, I suppose I want to say space in which to function and to operate these questions for yourself. I would presume very soon will be completely and totally colonized by AI algorithms working in conjunction with the various state-sanctioned drugging operations, ketamine, psilocybin, what have you. And as Nick Sand said, pointed out, this is the most, so this is an example, I guess, of the most obvious shit that would occurred, would, would have occurred, you know, to me, let's say, or to anybody in 1994. If you drop acid and then you go to anywhere, I mean, you go to the doctor's office, as Nick Sand points out, and then you wonder why you have hallucinations and preoccupation with respect to your, your visions or thoughts or both or all of it with being probed or being uh, in this strange sanitary observation space, you know, which is how a lot of the DMT experiences are detailed or described. You're almost too dumb, you know, to be, um, to continue the search because the setting has obviously recursed upon itself and then, you know, been bubbled in the brew of whatever exactly psychedelics are to result in that. So if you go to the Grateful Dead show and you have uh, a bunch of hallucinations based off of that culture, it's not a big surprise. It's because you took that ride. That margin between whatever the next level of mystical experiences and the normal everyday, um, you know, many people have termed the normal everyday as this, um, a box-like experience, you know, the one, two, three, four, that once you've built up these numbers, you've built your box for yourself, which, of course, Wittgenstein would have plenty, plenty to say about that. I mean, he, he fucking closed the case on it, more or less, I think, properly understood. But this was old alchemical shit, you know, um, known that there's a quality 
to your everyday experience that seems predetermined that you even your own thoughts and your own questioning of the predetermination seems to be predetermined and um what is the famous website very bizarre website very interesting uh Ego Death Theory, Michael Hoffman, not the same. As far as I know, not the same Michael Hoffman um, who, we, who we have spoken of earlier, you know, Secret Societies and Psychological Operations, Twilight Language, this character. Different Michael Hoffman, as far as I can tell. Um, his phrase for it is something like a frozen or... Um, What does he say? A box reality or something like this. And uh, he, he's just the latest of many, 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 many mystics, psychonauts, theologians, artists, throughout, fuck, and philosophers for that matter, um, to point this fact out. And in terms of the initiatory experience and the experience of the passage, not just the, the puberty or birth or marriage rite of passage, but um, say the meta passage that we've spoken of before, which is this constant state of passage given to us in this experience of being. It would, it would seem that in the big passages of your life, society works, is constructed. Your, say, primitive, tribal, what have you, society is constructed in such a way that you, you slip through the portal into the combination of, I'm just going to use these, these terms because it's easiest, but it may be, it may come around to bite me in the ass. Identity, context, role in society, um, etc. Those are totally fucking inefficient. Are excuse well they're inefficient, but they're also insufficient to they would be fine for academic work and they're fine for they were fine to get us to this point, but they're not going to be fine when it comes down to this programmatic AI control that's going to roll out on the mystical experience itself. And that margin is tiny and sacred. And once that's co-opted, dude, instead of having some sort of condition where we have a, a this sense of predetermination, this sense of frozen time, this sense of living in a loop, all the many ways to describe it, punctuated by these 
more peak-like experiences or mystical passages, transitions. It, it would be my contention, or as we said before, you know, these are just words. So don't get too hung up on the philosophical basis of them or the formality of them. Let's say it seems to me that this box metaphor for everyday reality, we can surround that with three initial atmospheres, let's say. And we can go to the literature and, you know, try to legitimize this with um, some recognized authorities or whatever. Or you can go get five grams of mushrooms and go out into the woods by yourself and then come back and tell me that it's something different. But generally speaking, Nick Sand is right. Um, you have the first phase of wonder and awe, mostly of beauty, and it's very much still rooted in this reality. Then you have another level where narrative itself uh, seems to be the predetermination that we can say or looping recursive nature of the, the main box a portal or something is opened here between these two as narrative itself becomes like operant. It's not, you know, the details of the dripping curtains and couch or leaves and ref refracting of light onto water becomes much, very obviously less important than something like the unfolding of the one moment to the next and this this question that they say drives all literature right of and film and what have you all narrative like okay but what happens next if you can get someone to sit there and stare at a screen with that question you've you've won you've hooked them they're going to sit there for two hours and then text their friend that it's a cool show at one point in history, this was a much nobler endeavor. Um, and the playing with these boundaries was itself a mystical, priestly thing to do. Um, and something that, of course, warriors understood. Always this relationship, this close relationship between the uncertainty, the constant like infinity of the martial potential juxtaposed again against the, the known, the repetitive, the commercial, as well as, again, with Wittgenstein, the syntactical, the, the form of language itself or the form of, the forms of math. 
these serve at that level. Um, because whether they're tools or themselves evil technologies is something, one, the present bandwidth does not allow me to jump over into that cul-de-sac just yet, but two, um, without more massive context, you know, it's hard to know. We're still, all of this, surveyed by God and given free will. So at that second level out, you know, maybe you took your five grams or maybe you went to an ashram for six, six years and preserved your seed and, you know, rerouted your, um, your kundalini power up into your pineal gland or, or whatever the fuck the process is and astral projected yourself into this narrative level um, where you're going you're gonna to encounter uh, DMT or no, you are going to encounter entities. Are these projections of yourself? Are these manifestations of no shit multiplicities within you? Are they uh, logoi-like archetypes somehow superpositioned between say, the metaphysical bounds into which we are allowed to operate between us and God? Are they totally distinct from you? Are they real dragons, real demons, real angels, or various odd hermits, curmudgeons, you know, rogue warriors wandering around? God knows. So that's level two, the level of the story. Level three, the level of, again, uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned this passage thing and you have this reference point. Uh, well, you have many reference points. You know, you have the idea of the peregrination the homing in, you have this natural level, the pilgrimage, pilgrim's progress toward the mystical, toward God. You have another reference point. I think we've mentioned it. We've definitely mentioned it on the war horse. Um, the cloud of unknowing which is this totally bizarre book that just seems to come into people's lives. Uh, you know, it, there's umpteen million copies of it out there. People know about it. You may know about it. Maybe it came into your life. Anonymous author, presumably some, some I think, French monk is the best guess they have. Anyway, a thousand-year-old book, very old, and medieval. And he describes the cloud of unknowing. 
the space in his stated to be just simply a contemplative practice, practice of prayer, um, ascetic loops that he's using to kind of bore away at this kind of, not amber, you know, you've got your, your little locust or praying mantis or fly or ant frozen for 10 million years in amber. And then you have those modern day recreations of, um, I guess it's, it's some kind of plastic, um, acrylic, like solid block. And you can, you could stick a bug in there. You could stick your homunculus in there. You can put a little, um, nature scene in there and then sell it at the thrift store for 10 bucks. It seems to be a fair enough model of this gel-like grid reality, much like a mold. And this man who has given his life to what he understands to be God, and he's joined this monastery, you know, this group of, of men who are going to participate in this together. And they're going to work and work and work in these teeny, uh, imperceptible loops to pry away a little bit of room within the container. It's, I think, pretty well understood if you read some of the writings on esoteric inner Christianity that there's much more going on than was given in either of these two reference points or presumably what's ever been given um, in an exoteric explicit description or manual um, word of mouth has has brought down that you know there there are these other methods. So whether this guy was drinking hallucinate, hallucinogenic beer in conjunction with fifteen or twenty years of intense hourly year after decade after decade of very patient but very powerful, like precise, just craftsman-like chiseling at the mold. Whatever the combination of methods he used arrives at what he describes the cloud of unknowing, where your, your visual experience is entirely nebulous. You may be hit with stars. You may be hit with something much like uh, a cloud of color. This isn't something that you can just close your eyes and sort of imagine. There's a vivid reality, if you will, to this experience. And this too has been, this territory has been charted by many, many, many mystics and what we call psychonauts. So 
in my experience, this ironic distance from God. You know, I don't I don't like so much the idea of okay, I was previously sort of writing the movie in which I live, and now I'm living the movie in which I live. It's there's something to it, but it due to the nature of the mold, the everyday consensus reality into which we are indoctrinated, the language doesn't quite hold together and you end up with, you know, the Baudrillarian spin-offs of 800 pages of intense theory that's very fun and sometimes diverting to, to read, but not all that fucking useful. Um, but luckily, you know, panentheism has saved the day and always does save the day. At a price, of course. I mean, there's no, there's no getting away from these things. The question, I think, is why don't we engage in them instead of... And uh, We sort of were closing out episode one with, uh, for myself... Uh, expressing some serious disdain, you know, for a lot of the the lukewarm, weak piss level, um, which too is expressed in stuff like I'm a Templar or, you know, um, billions must die or all this bloviating shit compare that that is not equivalent in any way to either the french monk uh working through sheer will to uh, like the ant breaking himself infinitesimally small little bits of space within his container nor to the member of the guild doing something similar now. Um, it would seem to me, again, back to this notion that in crises there are opportunity. When the veil is lifted, you know, both worlds collide and all these sorts of ideas that it's, and it's well at the narrative level, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Um, That's why I harp on this, this precision quality. Um, you know, as a young man, an athlete, and as I know some of you guys are young, and so the notion of, of like the value of boldness and stuff is still occurring to you. I know it did for me. Like, you know it when you're seven, you know it when you're nine, and you may forget about it between, say, I don't know, 14, 16, or whatever, up until maybe your early 20s. Some people never lose it. You know, this is the natural. Some people lose it one day and pick it up the next. But to make this a, to make the transition from these being sort of neat philosophical things to something much more consequential is at stake to where, again, this ironic distance between you and the, what is ultimately language itself, what is ultimately the container, um, and what 
and then there here here enters the question if you're following so far okay andy but what do i return to i've heard plenty of stories about the bhagwan and um the branch davidians or whoever else crazy fucking religious nuts that they end in tragedy and they explode and are on the side of the road blah 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 and it's terrible what do i cling to and um This is no, this is no um, lightweight shit here, you know, uh, to the extent that you can begin to manage, you know, this imperfect presentation or whatever, because they're all going to be imperfect. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, you're going, that's the ironic distance right there. The imperfect thing is going to have to be processed somehow at the level of the hunter into the warrior. It's remember, if you recall, essential episodes, what are they? Eight, nine, and ten or something like that. The warrior sounds cool. Oh, I pick up my gun and I fucking form a cult or a manor bun or I'm fucking gonna, you know, go underground. Like, dude, the level that you're fucking talking about is over. It's gone. And that, yeah, there may be some skirmishes. It's totally irrelevant. The level that you're really on or that um, this character, again, frozen in the amber, that's you, it's me, is moving towards, if you're moving at all, is this war with made with clarity. Um, So for this segment, let's see about our time on that one. Yeah, about 30. So I'm going to leave it there. The, uh, again, as the, if season one was chapter one, you know, which itself would be, it would contain the, the narrative structure, beginning, middle, and end, and it's, you know, various interesting high notes in between, of course, that's contained at the paragraph, that's contained at the sentence level, that's contained at the chapter level, and that is nested and nested and re-nested and nested. Um, there's your, you know, your ancient justification for a shift in structure. As well, I think that in doing it, season one, pardon me, I, there were there were some moments where it was easier to, or seem more natural, to uh, manage, say more macro ideas or more macro material, because it's kind of easier to put big blocks together, right, than it is to weave at the medium or precise level. So, running on at the mouth for an hour at a time uh, presented certain challenges. And I think I'm going to try and at least attempt to you know, experiment with, mitigate the next challenges by dropping it in half hour segments. We'll see how that goes. So hold tight. So let's weave this all a little bit more closely 
into our concept of the criminal of purpose. We have, again, as always, I'll pay homage. We'll pull up the quote. Musashi. Musashi. Carry no money or food. Go alone to places frightening to the common brand of men. Become a criminal of purpose. Be put in jail and extricate yourself by your own wisdom. We have pointed out, of course, that that last line, be put in jail and extricate yourself by your own wisdom, has to be where McCarthy got that opening scene for Shigur, right? Where he does exactly that. And then I think in the book he explains, maybe in the, they mention it in the movie, but yeah, it's definitely in the book. I let myself be caught to see, to prove to myself this very thing that I could escape. In this quote, carry no money or food. Go alone to places frightening to the common brand of men. Become a criminal of purpose. Be put in jail and extricate yourself from your own by your own wisdom. The quote seems to suggest that you have to become the criminal of purpose in order to operate without money or food and to go into places frightening to the common brand of men. You'd have to be the criminal of purpose to even conceive of something like putting yourself in jail only to extricate yourself by your own wisdom. Can we draw a direct line between the notion that there is only the one, ultimately, who has instantiated himself into the many, you and me, and my wife and my sons and your dad and your mom and your friend we're all the same person can we draw a direct line from there because the idea is well why we gotta do that if you need you know a guide to walk you through like what the fuck are you even talking about um you can start at the beginning of the war horse or you can DM me or something because this actually is not a concept that it's sort of you know standard uh, standard issue for me at this point but you may not be familiar with it this is not just a new age idea this is as deep as Christianity goes this is the this is the whole fucking thing how do you think you get the father and the son How do you think you get the vine and the notion of the church or anything else? It's this let's say it seems to me to be a mystical you know an observation that was made under by somebody in some mystical circumstance i don't i so I hesitate there because it's unknown you know when this thing block space-time 
it's like the block space time world like you're confined to space and time you want to reverse time and go talk to yourself as a kid you want to go ask that girl out again you want to save somebody's life you want to make a you want to change that thing that nags at you every night the regret uh, yeah, none of that shit's going to happen. You are on the course that you're on, but it's worse than that. It's that to enter into thought at all, if thought itself is a system, and it is, if logic is a system, math is a system, if language is, then in a sense you're back into all of that is predetermined. You can expand and move and change within the confines of that system all you want, but if that's all it is, then you're never going to use the system to extricate yourself from the system. So the idea is that everything arises, consciousness is primary. Everything arises, you know, we've had how many decades of geniuses and highly advanced untold billions of dollars. I remember when I was doing um, freelance work a long time ago. And uh, I got a job with this woman who it was a pretty good paying job. And, um, you know, it was flexible. The hours were sweet. It would have worked. And uh, so I took the job. And she said that she had figured out how consciousness functions from, um, from an entirely me mechanistic, you know, uh, biological material viewpoint. And so... I, I didn't know that that was her claim when I took the job. I knew that she wanted to write a book about consciousness. And she, you know, found me and was like, yeah, you'd be a good dude. So she gave me the job. And um, I met with her someplace, I think at a college somewhere. And she laid, she laid this out and she, she was kind of fumble fucking around to get around to this point and I just point blank asked her. So we're sitting here, yeah, it was a community college, um, commons area, you know, and we're sitting here in Portland, Oregon at some community college commons area and you're telling me I, what was she? She was like a bookkeeper or something, of course, like very mechanistic itself. That you, among all people, have solved the problem of the hard problem, it's called, uh, of consciousness. And I said, How, you know, I was, I suppressed my, at that point, I was out. I was like, Yeah, I had made my decision internally. <laughs> Fuck this. You're retarded. And, um, but I asked her, well, wow. So, you know, how did you, how did you do that? Cause that's a really hard, that's literally called in, you know, if you go to the edge.com where they're, they're selling little kids for, um, 
you know, what's the next great idea or where all the money goes in science. And there's a bunch of really interesting shit that goes on totally independent of that weird Epstein corruption. But um, that's where you, they'll tell yeah, that's Carl, that's called the hard problem. That's like the final fucking frontier barrier. And um, because you cannot isolate any place in the quote, in the brain where, you know, this magical thing, consciousness emerges out of all sorts of theories and approaches. They've all been absolutely flat fucking zero. No fucking progress at all. And she proceeded to tell me that she, um, and I should say she, she appeared otherwise sane. I mean, she wasn't, you know, a bag lady. She was well to do. She was organized and she did have a manuscript and all this, but, um, she said that she had gotten a bunch of children's books on mechanics, like how do trains work and how does the combustion engine work and you know how does i don't know fluid dynamics of a toilet or something work all these kids like shit for dummies sorts of stuff and she just figured it out and i you know had to kind of kindly extricate myself from that messy scenario because this was like 18 years ago or something. And um, she was very upset, you know. And I didn't, I, I think maybe I did actually tell her. I was like, uh, no, you didn't, you didn't do that at all. And uh, sorry, but I'm just going to actually not even read your thing. I knew as well, I, I think if the money had been good enough, I mean, I'm not saying I'm anything, you know, saintly or whatever. Had the money been good enough, sure, I would have uh, tried to help her write this foolish book but um i could tell you know i mean we could be dramatic and say like she was an agent of of the matrix or evil or something but i knew that she was the con it wasn't even you know it's not even the narcissism or the 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 like visions of fucking delusions of grandeur involved in there. Um, it was that she was going to be such a cunt to fucking deal with. And I don't mean in the sense like, did you do the work? Did you, you know, are you on time? Of course I'm on time. How fucking hard is that? It was that, you know, she, she so desperately had to avoid um, the meta questions of, ev- of at every turn of the road uh, in, in reality and of course in her, in her quote theory or what have you but we're getting a lot, a lot, pull out of this cul-de-sac if I can so the notion of the one and the many um, you know is solved I, I am among the camp that that solves it in this way. Um, consciousness is primary. This is what we spoke about the other day. Donald Hoffman, who is this very interesting um, cognitive scientist working with physicists and using mathematics to like 
again, sort of at oblique angles, approach this ridiculous um, scenario, you know, where the only thing that you have to evaluate yourself is yourself, so to speak. You can't quite get out of that system, and you never can. Well, it's not to say never. Um, that's the conundrum. And so, if there is this all-pervading consciousness connected to or itself energized by or somehow essential to God, that would go a long way to explaining a lot of stuff like how we got here. Maybe a little bit of what we're doing, but the why is at the ontological level, at the sort of primary level, is like, and you have this old idea, right? I think it's the um, the infamous Maimonides. Was it him? I think it was him. Um, who had this notion that uh, the only thing that God doesn't have is the experience of limits. So, and that's how back this this idea goes. I, my presumption is way, way, way past, you know, six or eight or ten or twelve thousand BC. Probably more like one hundred sixty thousand years BC. Or, and at that point, we're not. In my opinion, we're not talking about time as such anyway. We're not talking about this experience of block time, which is where we're trying to get back to a little bit. The cage of time-space. Anyway, the idea is God um, would then instantiate himself and we would be these shards, these imago Dei, these images of God. And, uh, of course, New Ageism... Uh, Deepak Chopra types and whatnot have glommed onto this in many different ways to exploit the mm, the unloved masses, the the desperate, and a lot of others. Those that need comfort but can't follow this, or don't care to follow it out. So you get. kind of um, fairy tale good good vibe notions that well let's just suffice to say like all the all the messy ends all of, all of everything that can't be messy to actually have explanatory power is just rolled up into some feel good bullshit let's just say it like that but it would and it has, uh, over time, this idea has been around a long time, that in order to experience, we'll say himself, rather than itself, itself is just, eh. you know, you would apply that to something else. But um, say himself, it would be granted to these special creatures 
uh, and presumably all creatures, you know, like you could experience the world as the bird. We don't, I don't know what it's like to be the bird flying over the placid lake in spring or the fish in the river in summer or anything else like that. What we have is this weird middling position where we have the feeling experience of blood, muscle, bones, and we have the semi-divine experience of consciousness. And I, that itself needs a little bit of expansion because I'm, I'm certain that my dog has consciousness. And I'm certain that he has something like self-consciousness. So it's not just simply that we're conscious. It's that we have this special kind of consciousness. And we have this almost, um, in a way, the notion of, again, the monk as the praying mantis frozen in amber, choosing to just shimmy himself and just pure will. You have something like will and raw intent and you have something like a choice to align or to tend yourself towards say a quality of will a quality i don't mean like wow that athlete has more willpower than that athlete i mean something more like you could align yourself with the will of the evil or align yourself with the will of the good and of course you may have some difficulty figuring out which is which but back to our criminal of purpose so to be put in jail and extricate yourself by your own wisdom one of these new agey ideas along with the a lot of the reincarnation notions, metempsychosis involves, and then of course Gnosticism, involves some version of, um, and Gnostics, some Gnostics did have, uh, in fact, origin, as I think I've said, you know, believed in a metempsychosis, which is transmigration of the soul, which is an afterlife. And that was eventually cut down in Orthodox Christianity for one reason or another. For specific reasons, but for another time. In New Ageism, there's a big emphasis on this idea like you chose your parents. You know, you were a fully formed thing, something. Are you a soul? There's no, you know, if you're the type that's looking for, well, what the fuck, what is a soul exactly? Is that the intellect? Is that what the Orthodox call the noose? And what is the noose? Can I have the noose and the soul? Is the soul connected to other souls? Is the soul ectoplasmic? Is it quasi-material? Is it entirely definite? Is it named Andy? Is it named Jimmy? Does it keep that name if it... No, it doesn't. Apparently, you know, according to New Ageism's the soul 
the individuated soul, individuated out of the mass of super intelligence, um, you know, that is God, presumably, or consciousness, or the two are equivalent, chooses that life to learn certain lessons. So chooses those parents to maybe, and, and et cetera. And then it develops from there into another narrative, like you have soul brothers, you know, um, a soul family. It's something like, maybe be a different term, but it's um, essentially you're going to reincarnate again with similar people because either they're your nemesis or they have your back or you're enacting some microdrama or whatever, which, you know, outside of time, time's no big deal isn't that wacky it's not a terrible narrative theory or anything like that at all um my issues with it are a little bit otherwise but that's an example of where the notion that god could reform, dial down, create a pocket of himself that was limited in these ways to experience himself in, you know, nearly infinite ways all at once, presumably. And this would be, you know, again, you would presume recorded into something, again, outside of time the mind of God or what have you. But hopefully this gives you an idea of where the criminal purpose concept starts to. It says if you can take the one wire out of the synthesizer, you know, and put it into this this other jack, you know, go from this envelope to another to mix our metaphors and then not explain them at all. Um, you can, it would be a metaphor of, you know, frequency manipulation, which I think is where I want to go with all this stuff anyway. So maybe it's not too terrible of an analogy, but My suggestion with the box reality and criminal of purpose has always, with the criminal of purpose at least, has always been this. And this is kind of like, you know, season two approach. <clears throat> We're commonly sold in, in this aforementioned sort of narrative idea that, you know, the prison is itself time and space which is an illusion. And so you start to wonder, well, I don't know, man. I mean, I guess I meditate on this for four hours a day for the rest, for the next, you know, if you have 60 years, if you, you get it young. I got it young. I probably had 60 years. To to what end exactly? Um, you know, maybe I get bliss and something I can share with other people to ease their suffering. And some people have taken this route. That's fantastic.
It may be instead, though, that this is one as it, how do we say it? It's all nested and it's all unfolding further. So this may be one instantiation of a type of uh, limit set into consciousness for the sake, uh, for the purpose of the arising of the human experience of being. And from a theological angle, you know, many people have put interpretations to the Garden of Eden. What exactly are we talking about here? As somebody I know said, so the interesting thing about the snake is, why is it a punishment for the snake to crawl on its belly when that's what it does? This is some straightforward shit. And, um, you know, the meme of the, the moron and the genius and the mid, you know, and there's agreement at the two ends of the spectrum, but there's retardation in the middle. That's fine for politics, bro. That's fine for all sorts of areas of life. But, um... <clears throat> Well, you know, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be the mid myself, and I don't want to, I don't want to limit anybody's interpretation of a fucking meme. Far be it from me. But at a certain level, if you're looking at the actual, like the raw nature of of the thing outside of the story and whatever belief you need to have in the story, and that belief you may need to have that. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. That may be necessary to survival, not just in this life. You get me? One interpretation of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, which is such a stupid mouthful of a way to, of a thing to say, but um, it's awkward, right? The tree of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of the good and the evil, um, would be something like the capacity for creating these uh, systems, system of language utterances blah, blah, blah. my boy now is doing and ma 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 and da 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 and it's the absolute cutest shit that's ever happened in my life so what do you do anyway the knowledge to create and persevere into these systems. If you've ever seen, if you've ever even done the cursory examination of the alternate, you know, uh, mathematics that are not base 10, you can get, you can do this in five minutes on YouTube. If you've ever looked at the stunning uh, coincidences or not of the number nine is one of my favorites. There are many of these. 
And oftentimes, you know, there are many cases where, I mean, the main case, and this is not mid, this is well beyond mid. I, well, maybe not. I mean, in a certain, again, these things are, fuck them. I retract. I recant. Um, but it's, it's, it's understood, say, if we go back again to the all-time favorites, McCarthy, St. Gregory of Nyssa, say Maximus the Confessor. You can go into various flavors of um, Zen. You can pick out Bodhidharma. We can grab up Rumi. I mean, you can do it however you want. And uh, I like to do it all different kinds of ways, personally. But it's understood. I, I will take the Orthodox perspective. Again, St. Gregory. Nothing knows anything but with nothing knows anything but wonder. It's translated all different weird ways. But essentially what I take from this is like nothing but wonder knows anything. Nothing knows anything but wonder. You can configure this how you want. There is wonder. And and you can get there through the road of logic. You can get there through the system of mathematics. You can get there through the system of language. McCarthy will take you there. Gerdell will take you there. What? If they go crazy, I'll pause this. Sit. Good boys. But here we are, someplace. You're not in logic. And the container of logic in this experience, um, how would we say it? Sort of, let's just say instantiated into, you know, our Heideggerian clearing, our box reality contained in space time. This should concern everybody at every moment and my personal uh, burden source of a lot of angst is this notion that any of what follows okay what's what is there's a there's a logic to politics there's a logic to commerce to to capitalism a logic to marriage or, you know at least there's more to it um, there's certainly a logic to relationships that can be applied as this type of overlay onto jumping back our particularized experience of being muscle bone blood creatures whether that is and it is a type of illusion doesn't diminish the fact that God has con constructed us in this manner. And it seems to me that everything at the historical level, alluding back here to the last episode, 41, I guess, uh, 
you know, we've been on this course. We do live in an interesting time. I'm not sure it'll be the most interesting, but, um, you know, since the 30s and 40s, most of what we're experiencing as the oncoming technological technocratic nightmare was prefigured. That it arrived in the form of this neat little Kubrickian monolith as the iPhone is fucking totally irrelevant. The effects of it, again, Debord, McLuhan, on down the list, um, you know, Steve Jobs or whoever, Michael Dell, Elon Musk. Don't they seem, in a sense, actors filling a role? And I don't mean this in your typical, like, conspiratorial sense, like they were hired by an evil cabal because they're butt-fucking children. You know, maybe that's part of it. I, I mean, but doesn't it seem as if somebody was going to fill each of these roles along the way? And it just so happened that because of, I think that, for Apple, it's, you know, the slick design and all this sort of stuff that that really enabled them to grab this massive piece of the market and then to control the ways in which we as humans now engage with these things, what the icons look like, blah, blah, blah. But the notion that we were going to be contained and surveilled and controlled and placed into this type of new box, which is inside of space-time box. So now the walls themselves are, they're closing in. They're, there's like your Luke, or no, yeah, your Luke and Han, Chewie's in there, Princess Leia, you're in the fucking trash compactor. But you're already in the trash compactor. And herein, of course, the forest passage, you know, the inner passage to freedom. What is that? Was that just some pretty cool flowery language meant to spark in you a deeper capacity for suffering and maybe a little cunning? Vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, straight-up totalitarian, in-your-face, uh, piling up bodies. Yeah, that and there's some practical stuff in there. But Jünger was not in any... I mean, the dude was one of the deepest that we've had. One of the broadest. Uh, and that's not the sum total. I don't personally believe that it was all fleshed out in that book. I don't... I don't think that that's a masterwork. By I think that the, the ideas are um, exquisite, and but I do not think that he was a um, like his presentations are not particularly masterful. Let's say, but fuck it, neither, neither, neither are yours or mine. Um, well, <laughs> let's be honest. 
I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I'll check my time here. 36. All right, so maybe we'll we'll try to close this this module down here in a minute. Um, I think that what Junger was getting at is not entirely separate from these what to me seem to be the most direct um, urgent actual questions not just in some uh, it's a spiritual war because I, I don't believe in in this activity but the other person does if all of this was in some very very serious way prefigured the questions I would leave myself with and I'll leave you with we're on the same you know this ain't a guru thing I'm doing this lifetime too what is the quality of your will really what is the real quality of your will if you have to be frozen in amber and then through some inner agitation begin to build that up such that you can maybe over I mean if we're talking about you know six what is it they're frozen like six million years so it might take you a half a million or a million years to even believe that you've budged from your chains what is the quality of your will if what this is are you a participant in this story are you prefigured prefabricated role player in the drama these are the fucking questions that you know put somebody send this over to jordan peterson this is the point where you know he's out the door he's made his 12 million bucks i've made my 120 bucks from patreon for the month and um so here's my pitch, you know, for you guys to help me out and try and stuff this down people's throat. But I will step back lest I lose my important train of thought, important to me anyway. What is the quality and what are the methods? The methods are not to jibber-jabber and fucking act like a know-it-all on social media. It's not to get a fucking wife and have a bunch of kids. That too, I mean, what could be more prefigured than that? What could be more biologically, quote, determined than that? Is it to fight in the culture war? Is it to struggle mightily? And the struggle itself, as a form of frequency, among the many, many billions of nodes instantiated into consciousness to aggregate this into something else would that be a part-time endeavor would that be like i could go on fox news and talk about the 2a one day and then we go over and just you know fuck off and sit on my ass for a couple of weeks and maybe uh do like jack goldstein and stick some stuff up my ass and then go on to again Fox News and bloviate about is that what it is is it I mean as my friend 
massive uh, warhorse absorber put it, McCarthy is law, so let's refer. No country for old men, which we'll, we'll, we'll go into this a little more in our next uh, module. I've got him scheduled in the bullet points. No country anyway. line that nobody else seems to give a shit about never seen it quoted commented on or anything else paraphrased why did a man sit down after 16 12 whatever hours of ass busting labor you know digging in the hard caliche to carve a stone water trough to last 10,000 years context for it is one of the characters is talking about this stone water trough that he has witnessed that is hand carved out of one monolithic piece of stone presumably maybe he washes hands in it maybe the animals drink out of it either way McCarthy for his <clears throat> well since we since we have belief since faith precedes knowledge and it precedes logic as I think I left that thread untied anyway that was the point with St. Gregory of Nyssa and the wonder and all this stuff what exactly is that well my experience has been that's that you have to do it you know you have to stand there in awe and then you have to probably come down from whatever took you up and then you have to put your life back together and that's that would be a much better life than even if it lasted 20 fucking years and that was all you got but uh, that would be a better life than you know Willie Loman the office take your example where you will McCarthy himself, this is one of these, you know, I won't even say it. I won't even say what I was going to say. But this is right. This is a writer, you know, even now in by the commoner or most people is understood to be okay. He's probably one of the greats. I relent. I was okay. He's pretty fucking good. Yeah, you guys knew that 30, 40 years ago, whatever. But and you, and you insisted on it, and you made societies for this motherfucker when he was like 60. My friends and I have been walking around quoting this stuff for for 25 years. Okay, he's pretty damn good. Refused all these interviews. Makes some, you know, makes some pacts, makes some major major life choices along the way. Rolls the dice, pulls it off. Great American novel. And kind of one of the great American bodies of work. And I think when that is analyzed, after I have absolute faith and sell my film rights and tell you the full picture, um, you'll see. But I will drop this little piece here. Even though, damn, we're pushing way beyond my limits here to up to 45 minutes.
McCarthy is none of the things that you want to box him into. He's not a materialist. He's not, you know, even as he says, I'm pretty much a materialist in this latest interview. I'm pretty much a materialist. Pretty much ain't a materialist. It's not even close. It's not the same thing at all. That was him in that interview, pressured by a fucking asshole, uh, Lawrence Krauss, you know, to come up with an answer. As if you don't know, you know, McCarthy is on his way out. Uh, my understanding is that he is not particularly well and uh, I, I will never forgive that autistic, spurg, predatorial asshole for his absolute disrespect of the man. I, I you know. But um, what, what I want to say to close the circle is... My presumption here is that the struggle itself, though it cannot be um, without consequence, though it cannot be uh, phoned in, it like working out, if that's a real struggle for you, then, you know, if like it's a literal, I mean, fucking pathological issue, then it's probably a place to start. But it ain't for the average guy who gets on, you know, shows his body off on the fucking Instagram and then is like, yeah, fucking warrior fight on. Fuck you, dude. I know because it's easy for me that it's easy for you. It's not a fucking big struggle. Oh, yeah, like 10 days out of the year, I really got to, you know, whip myself into shape to go do it. Fine. Fuck you. That's not the type of struggle. That ain't the quality of will that we are referring to. Uh, it is way, way more painful, much, much less related to lust, popularity, money, greed, avarice, etc. And that may very well be the real criminal purpose.